Let's pray. Father, in moments like this, we wish that we could have been there to hear your son say these words, to stand on the shore with him. And yet, Lord, we thank you that by your Holy Spirit, he is with us always, even to the end of the age. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would empower this word that you've breathed out such that Christ might become plain to our souls, as plain as if he was before us in the flesh, and that we might hear his call and that we might sense his value and that we might respond with love. I pray you'd help us to love Jesus this morning. Father, we know that you delight in your son. You are well pleased with him. So, Father, would you bring glory to your son this morning by sharing that love with us, that we might love him with the love that you yourself have for him. Would you strengthen me as I preach? Would you strengthen all of us in our spirits as we receive? And I pray that all of us would be engaged in listening with faith to what you have to say today. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You can have a seat. It's rumored in the early 1800s when Ernest Shackleton was preparing a a crew for his planned expedition across Antarctica that he posted a newspaper ad that said this. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Ernest Shackleton. And the story goes that 5,000 men responded to that ad saying that they wanted to go. Now, in the years since, no one's been able to actually find the original, and many people have questioned whether this actually happened. But the fact that the story gets passed around so much shows that there's something to it. There's something important here. There's something that stirs up in our hearts when we hear about an invitation to something hard and dangerous and historic and important. Not everyone's hearts. 5,000 people responded. How many more read those words and thought, that's not for me? Many people prefer that which is easy and comfortable to that which is important. Today we come to one of the passages in Matthew 8 to 9 that shows us how people were responding to Jesus and the call of the, the kingdom and the spreading message of the kingdom. Remember on Matthew 8 to 9, there's nine accounts of miracles that Jesus did grouped into groups of three. And in between are these accounts of, of how people were responding to Jesus. And particularly today with the middle two characters in this account, we're going to hear how Jesus gave a call that sounds a lot like Shackleton's advertisement. Hard and challenging and important. And we're going to see today how this account helps us understand the nature of following Jesus today 
And it, it's going to ask us some questions that we should be asking in response to these words of Jesus. So let's pick up where we left off last week. Last week, verses 16 and 17 in chapter 8, Jesus was ministering to a group of people that had gathered outside Peter's door, which is where he was staying. Verse 16, that evening they brought him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. And then we read in verse 18 in Matthew chapter 8, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. So we got to see the connection. There's that word now, and so these, these passages are connected. And, and the sense that Matthew gives us here is that the crowds were gathering to the point where that Jesus had to get away from them. And so he put in, he gave orders to get, go across the lake in one of the boats. Now, this is not the only time that Jesus had to get away from the crowds. This actually is a, is a pretty common theme in the Gospels. And this was one of the benefits of ministering around the Sea of Galilee is that the lake gave Jesus a, a quick getaway. Now, we should ask, why, why did Jesus need to get away from the crowds? And, and this question brings up the tension that Jesus had it, 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 with the crowds. There's a tension all throughout Jesus' relationship, uh, all throughout Jesus' ministry. There's a tension in his relationship with the crowds. One of the things we can say right away is Jesus was not anti-crowd. Uh, we're going to read in chapter 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus cared about the crowds. And many times we're going to see Jesus teaching, healing, even feeding the crowds. And yet today's passage shows us that at the same time, there was a growing difference between the crowds and Jesus's true followers, the disciples on the other hand. The crowds contained all kinds of people who were interested in Jesus for all kinds of reasons and not always for the best reasons. And numbers of times in the Gospels, we see that the crowds could cause real problems for Jesus. And so many times Jesus has to get away from the crowds so that he can spend time with his disciples. And, and this shows us the priority that Jesus had to deliberately train the twelve so th- this is a big principle in the Gospels, how, how Jesus could have spent all his time with the crowds because everyone wanted a piece of him. But many times he chose to spend time with a smaller group of people. Not everybody who wanted to spend time with Jesus got to spend time with Jesus. Many times he withdrew from the crowds, spent time with a smaller group of people. There's, there's a smaller group of disciples. Then within that, there was the 12 And then often he would go away with just Peter, James, and John. And so that's a bit of what's going on here as Jesus withdraws from the crowds to a Gentile region. As we're going to see, he ends up there. And so as Jesus gets ready to leave, he's getting maybe, maybe he's got a foot in the boat already. And some people see him leaving and they want to go with him. They want to go with him. And so the first person that wants to go with him is the scribe. Verse 19, and a scribe came up. Scribes were professional scholars. They were experts in in handling documents, and they were professional scholars of the law. They were responsible for reading, interpreting, and teaching the law of Moses to the people. 
The scribes were part of the, what we could say is the religious ruling class in Israel. We often see scribes connected with the Pharisees or the chief priests. They're often mentioned together. They were sort of like the henchmen to the Pharisees or the chief priests. They were the guys who sort of said, yes, that is what the law says. You must do all these things. And, and they, they were the, they were the ones who were responsible for, for a lot of the, the, Uh, extra teachings of the Pharisees and giving them sort of uh, that sense of authority. Back in Matthew 5.20, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the scribes are powerful, they're influential, and we know already they're not always in Jesus' good books. Okay, Scribes are not always uh, seen as the good guys. So knowing that, how would you respond if you were there that day and a scribe came up and made this confident declaration that we see in verse 19, his confident declaration, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? It sounds really good. This sounds like a bit of a breakthrough with the religious leaders, right? There, there's, there's been tension between, beneath the surface here with John the Baptist and the religious leaders and, and Jesus and the religious leaders. And one of those religious leaders comes and says, I'm in, Jesus. I'm going to go with you wherever you go. I mean, how many of us would be ready to throw a party right away? You know, kind of the same way we do whenever some celebrity goes on a talk show and says nice things about Jesus. And we're just like, oh, they're a Christian. And we get so excited because some famous person is showing Jesus some, some love and, and we don't stop to ask questions. I wonder if some people around Jesus were feeling that, feeling that day. Hey, one of the scribes is on our team. Yes. But maybe not so fast. Jesus certainly doesn't seem to be pumping his fist. Matthew helps us see, as he records this, there's a few aspects here to the scribe's statement that we got to think about. First, let's notice what he calls teach, what he calls Jesus. He calls him teacher. That sounds good. The problem is there were many teachers that day. This, this was a standard term that a scribe or someone else would use for a rabbi, teacher. There's lots of teachers that day, in those days. And here's what's, here's what's very interesting. The, the, the teachers or the rabbis, they always waited for people to follow them. It was normal to, for, <clears throat> to have someone become a disciple of a rabbi and follow them around. That was normal. But it was always up to the disciple. The disciple would go up to the rabbi and say, I'm going to be yours. Uh, it was never the kind of thing where, where what Jesus has been doing, and we're going to see him do more, where Jesus goes up to people and says, follow me, follow me. Right? Jesus calls the shots. That was an authority they'd never seen before. So there's a sense that which this guy may not fully understand what kind of person he's dealing with with Jesus. It seems like he thinks Jesus is just another teacher, and he gets to pick to follow him. Something else that's very interesting is that in Matthew, the word teacher used for Jesus is never used by someone who actually believes in Jesus. The word teacher in Matthew is only ever on the mouth of people who don't actually believe in Jesus, like the Pharisees. Right? So what they just think Jesus is just another rabbi and maybe kind of a mixed up rabbi at that. They don't really know who he is. And so that's sort of the sense we get here is that the scribe just Jesus is a great teacher and he thinks he gets to pick him. And isn't Jesus lucky that he got picked by this scribe? You know, we don't know if that's what he was thinking, but... And he makes this statement, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. So let's look now at Jesus' response. 
before we look at Jesus' response, let's think, how, how do we respond? How, how many of us would be tempted to think, ah, this guy might not get it. Oh, but man, let's, let's get him on the team. Think of, think of the good public image this will give us, to have a scribe among the disciples. Yeah, let's, enough of these fishermen and uneducated people. Let's get a real smart guy on the team. That's going to look really good. Who cares if he's a little mixed up? That's not how Jesus thinks. Jesus knows that this prospective follower has no clue what he's getting into. He doesn't know what he's, what he's signing up for. And so Jesus splashes the cold water of reality in his face when he says this in verse 20. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Foxes have a hole that they can return to night after night, a place that they call home. Birds have a nest that they return to day after day, a place that they call home. But following Jesus at that point meant that you might not know from one day to the next where you were going to be sleeping that night. Right? Jesus was an itinerant minister from one place to the next to the next, and he had no fixed address, no place to call home. We get a really clear picture of this in the next part of Matthew, which finds Jesus laying his head where? In a boat. And then he lands in a Gentile territory, does a miracle, and he gets kicked out. He's got to go somewhere else. He, he, he was never in one place for very long, was seldom welcome in, in the places where he went. Isn't that ironic? Just think about this. Jesus, who has so much power and authority. Think of the miracles we've, we saw him do last week. And he's got nowhere to sleep. This man with so much more authority than the scribes and the Pharisees is homeless. And this irony is is drawn out further by Jesus in this title that he uses for himself. Look at what Jesus calls himself in verse 20. The Son of Man. Thirty times in the book of Matthew, Jesus uses this phrase of himself. And throughout all the Gospels, this is Jesus' favorite way of, of describing himself. The Son of Man. And it's a really important phrase because at the beginning, we're kind of wondering, okay, what's this mean? But as time goes on and as we read through Matthew's Gospel, it becomes very clear that this is a phrase that comes from the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, 13 to 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, to the son of man, was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the Son of Man is a really interesting character because he looks like a Son of Man, in other words, a human. And yet he's doing things that only God can do. In the Bible, the idea of riding on the clouds is associated with God and receiving a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Well, that's, that's God's territory. So this son of man in Daniel is this, is this interesting character that seems on the one hand to be both human and on the other hand to be God. And how does that work? 
Well, we know how it works. We know that this is Jesus, and that becomes very clear. And, and Jesus refers to himself by this phrase, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, to point in these two directions that he's, he's man, he's humble, he's on earth, he's, he's, he's a human, but he's more than a human. He's also this divine one who does what only God can do, receives what only God can receive. So is it, isn't that ironic that the Son of Man who will ride on the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days and receive an eternal kingdom, doesn't have a pillow, doesn't have a, a home to lay his head. That's the, that's the irony at the heart of, of Jesus' earthly ministry. Though he will rule the nations forever, though earth will be his kingdom, he doesn't have a bed. And, and here's the point, is that those who are going to follow Jesus, they got to be willing for the same thing. That's the point of what Jesus is saying to this disciple. You want to follow me wherever I go? Okay. We might be sleeping in a boat tonight. We might, I don't know where we're sleeping. Well, I mean, of course Jesus knew, but they didn't know where they're going to be sleeping the next night. It's it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. Are are you up for that? That's what he's saying to this man. Are you up for that? Are you willing for what this is going to cost? Are you willing to follow me even though it's going to be hard? Or do you just want the prestige of following the latest, coolest rabbi. How do you think the scribe answered? Was he up for it? He said, yeah, I've counted the cost, Jesus. I know it's going to be tough, but I'm in. Or did he say, oh, I thought this was going to be a little bit more comfortable than that. Maybe I'll go back to Jerusalem. What what do you think he said? Hang on to your answer, because we're going to come back to that. But before we get there, another man comes onto the scene. So this is our third character, right? We've seen this, the crowds. We've seen the scribe. Now our third character, the son. Verse 21. Another of the disciples came to, said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Okay, there's a lot of really important material that we need to see here. So first of all, notice this man is referred to as, as one of Jesus' disciples. So that should make us perk up. Now, the word another of his disciples kind of seems like maybe both the scribe and this guy are disciples in some sense. And yet, the scribe was never referred to as a disciple. This guy is. So it seems like there's a bit of a, of a, of a difference here. So is it saying like another person, a.k.a. one of the disciples? And that makes us wonder if there's something different here with this guy. Second, notice what he re- how he refers to Jesus. He says... Lord, okay? He doesn't say teacher like the, like the scribe. He says, Lord. And remember how we said the word teacher is only used by people who don't really believe in Jesus in Matthew? The word Lord's the opposite. In Matthew, the word Lord is always found on the mouth of people who are actually coming to Jesus with some kind of faith. So, there's a couple of differences here. And another difference is in verse 22, Jesus actually tells the man, follow me. He never said that to the scribe, but he says to this man, follow me. So there's some clues here that this this son is in a different category than the scribe. So we can think of it this way. If, If we're on the right track here, we can think of it this way. The scribe wanted to start following Jesus, and he had no idea what he was getting into. And Jesus helped him count the cost. The son needs to continue following Jesus. And he needs to continue counting the cost. 
So this, this is actually really important because it helps us see that counting the cost of following Jesus isn't one and done. We don't, you don't just do it once as you follow Jesus at the beginning and then that's it. But rather, this story helps us see that there is a continued need for disciples of Jesus to continue to count the cost. And that seems to be the, the, the point of, of what's going on here. So let's look at his uncertain request. Verse 21. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. In other words, I want to go with you. Like he wants to go with him across the lake is what it seems like. I want to go with you, but is it okay if I go bury my father first? Now, some of you here have buried your parents. You know that there's an emotion to this. But what we need to understand is this was even a way bigger deal in the first century to these first century Jews than any of us can understand. Family responsibilities to a first century Jew were, we could almost say, everything. And few family responsibilities got close to the responsibility of burying one of your parents, especially your father. Burying your parents in the Jewish understanding was the capstone of your duties as a child and was seen as a sacred responsibility. And, and, and for them, this was connected to the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. And that was one of the main ways that they kind of completed that was by bur- giving their parents a good burial. This is very interesting. We, we actually have Jewish teaching that very clearly says, if you have to take care of a dead relative, you, you get an exemption on following all of the Torah. Like, in other words, you're allowed to break as many laws as you need to break in order to bury your parent. Okay, that, was, that was in the Jewish understanding. So you got to pass on everything else. If you had to work through the Sabbath, if you had, like, if you had to murder to, to, to bury your parent, do it. Now, maybe a bit of an exaggeration, but that's, that's literally what it says. You were exempted from saying the Shema, from, from following the Torah, if you had to bury a parent. That was the Jewish mindset. So, nothing else got in the way of this. So please notice this. When this man says, Lord, I want to go bury my father, he's not asking for a Friday off to go hang out with his buddies. He's not asking to go fishing. This is more like a dad saying, Lord, can I go walk my daughter down the aisle? In fact, it's actually probably more significant than that. Now, there's a few situations why this question might have come up now. Maybe he just got word that his dad had just died. And he's like, I gotta go. Or maybe his dad was close to death and he wants to stay there until he can do his duty as a son and bury him and then follow Jesus. Uh, There's a couple other scenarios that might be true. But here's, here's, here's what we need to see. This request would have been seen as completely reasonable by everybody standing there before Jesus. Everybody would have said, oh, of course. The world stops if you need to bury your parent. That's how they thought. Of course you go bury your parent. That's how everybody would have thought. This man's request, completely reasonable. So no one, no one could have been prepared for Jesus' response. Follow me. And leave the dead to bury their own dead. First, notice the command, follow me. 
Remember the scribe? He thought he could pick who he follows. Jesus, Jesus tells us to follow him. Jesus is in the driver's seat. Jesus decides, and he expects us to obey. Now notice, too, the command, follow me. Notice that there's a period after that. Jesus doesn't say, follow me across the lake. Follow me for three weeks. Follow me dot, dot, dot. No, no, there's nothing, there's nothing there. There's a verb, follow, and then there's a person, me. That's it. So, in other words, disciples of Jesus don't negotiate with Jesus. Like, I'll follow you to this place, or I'll follow you as long as I don't have to go to this place. Or, you ever heard someone say that? Oh, I, I could never go to this place with Jesus. We don't actually get to say that. Or, I'll, I'll follow you for this long, or I'll follow you as long as I get to bury my father. Doesn't work that way. Follow me, period. That's how Jesus commands his disciples to follow him. Disciples of Jesus don't ask where they're going, how long. It's just who. Who am I following? Jesus. Okay, I'm in. And no other priority gets in the way. Not even the most sacred priority in Jewish culture. Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead, Jesus said. In other words, let the spiritually dead bury their physically dead. This is an understanding that, that they would have had. And we see this fleshed out elsewhere in the Bible. Is that the people who were not following Jesus, the people who weren't interested in Jesus were dead, spiritually dead, dead in sins. And Jesus says, let the, let the people who are dead in sins, who are spiritually dead, let them bury the ones who are physically dead. But you, follow me. Loyalty to Jesus has to have the highest place in the life of a disciple. Higher than any other attachment, any other allegiance, any other relationship, any other loyalty. Nothing, not even the most sacred responsibility, competes with doing what Jesus says because Jesus is Jesus and he comes first. And Jesus holds this line even if it means having fewer followers. I mean, doesn't it sound like Jesus is trying to chase these guys away? Says the one, uh, it's not going to be comfortable or easy and the other one, no, don't go do the most important thing in the world to you. Follow me. Like It sounds like he's trying to chase them off and and in a sense we can see that, that Jesus is showing he's not interested in having a whole bunch of half-hearted followers. He's not interested in a bunch of people who are sort of interested in following him a little bit. So often here in North America, we're content with that. Like we talked about the celebrity. Oh, they said nice things about Jesus. Hooray. That's not the kind of thing that Jesus was interested in. Jesus wants disciples who are all in and who are fully devoted, even if that means there's not many of them. Jesus is not interested in numbers. He's getting away from the crowds. He wants fully committed disciples. Now, please, please hear this. We don't have to, uh, we shouldn't have to say this, but it's important to be reminded of it. Maybe we do have to say it. This has nothing to do with disciples earning their salvation has nothing to do with that. We're justified by faith alone, sorry, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Full stop, okay? But, maybe not but, maybe I'll say and, okay? We're justified by grace alone, 
through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the Christ in whom we have faith is the Lord. So to have faith in him means that we are now in a relationship with him of disciple master and we'll do what he says. So in the end, there's no such thing as a half-hearted disciple. As Bob Hartman once wrote, we're either out or we're in all the way. Jesus gets everything or Jesus gets nothing at all. So we're about to ask some really important questions of ourselves, but first we need to see how verse 23 ties into this account. Now, verse 23 is actually the, the opening verse of next week's passage, but you've got to see how it's connected. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. I love that. I love that because it shows what disciples do, and it shows that there's a progression here. We go from the crowds, the crowds, to the guy that wanted to start following Jesus, to the guy that wasn't sure if he was going to keep following Jesus to the disciples who just follow Jesus. He gets, Jesus got in the boat. I'm getting in the boat. No questions asked. No negotiations. I'm going with him. And they follow him wherever, whatever. And, and, and we see that it was tough, right? They, they almost died that night in the, in the trip across the lake. And then they went to the Gadarenes and they walked into what seemed like a scene out of a horror movie. And then they got kicked out of the region. And it's like, not easy. But disciples of Jesus follow Jesus. Full stop. So what about you? Now you might say, what do you mean, what about me? This is a story about some other people back in the first century following around an itinerant teacher. And I've actually heard some, some good guys like pastors that I respect say, we shouldn't talk about following Jesus. That was for them as, as Jesus was literally on earth. But that, that's not like following Jesus isn't something that's for us. And I, I, don't, I don't agree with that. And, and here's why. Do you notice how this story is written? Do you notice how Matthew doesn't record how either of these guys responded? He doesn't tell us. We don't know whether they went with Jesus or not. We don't know whether the cost of homelessness or the cost of missing your father's funeral and, and having the rest of your family think you're crazy, but you, you didn't come bury dad to follow him, right? We don't know if that was, was too much of a cost for these guys or not. And Matthew leaves us hanging on purpose, okay? This is where, where we see Matthew's skill as, as an author because this invites us to finish the story. It invites us to wonder what happened. And it invites us to reflect, what would I have done? Daniel Doriani wrote that how this invites us to, quote, slip into the gap created by silence and decide how we would finish the story. That's what this invites us to do. How would you finish the story? Please understand this is more than just an interesting question. This is more than just... Uh, curiosity because the truth is that we all have been summoned to follow Jesus. Now, yes, the way that we follow Jesus is different from the people in this passage. For them, Jesus was there in the flesh and following him literally meant getting into a boat and going across the lake, literally following him. But you and I today are still called to be disciples of Jesus, to be bound to Jesus, to give him all of our allegiance, all of our loyalty. 
And the primary way that we follow Jesus today is by following his teaching. Okay, so this is what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 28, 18 and 20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. See the echo from Daniel 7, right? There's that idea of the the son of man who has received a kingdom that all peoples should honor him. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So this thing of discipleship is not done. We're still to make disciples of all nations. But what does that look like? baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Like we're going to do next week. We've got a baptism service next week. You can still get in on that if you want to. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So that, that, there it is, right? Disciples of Jesus now observe all of his teaching. That's how we follow Jesus. That's how we follow Jesus. This is the sense behind John 10, 27, where Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So we follow Jesus's teaching. That's one of the main ways that we follow Jesus. And we follow his teaching even when it brings hardship and difficulty into our lives. Following Jesus also means following his example. And this language comes up in 1 Peter 2.21. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. So followers, disciples of Jesus today follow Jesus' teaching, and we follow his example. And his example, following his example, primarily has to do with suffering and suffering for him. And we can't forget that because of the Holy Spirit, there's a very personal connection here. Following Jesus' teaching is not like following some other religious text, because how did Jesus conclude that great commission? Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus, by his Spirit, is very involved personally with us as we follow his teaching and as we follow his example. So are we called to follow Jesus? Absolutely. We don't follow in the same way these people did, but we we certainly follow in the sense that Jesus has our complete loyalty, our complete allegiance. Nothing else gets between us and Jesus. We're completely bound to him. That's a disciple was bound to their teacher. And our lives are completely devoted to his purposes. And that means that there are going to be times, just like the disciples or the potential disciples in this story, where our loyalty to Jesus is going to collide with our desire to have a comfortable life. Our loyalty to Jesus is going to collide with our sense of obligation to our extended family. Maybe sometimes our immediate family. I can think of a lot of times in my life where I've had to choose between money and Jesus, between success and Jesus, and yes, between family and Jesus. Families where things get tough, right? Even good Christians, good Christians. One of, I remember one, well, one of my seminary professors, good man, came out with a statement that basically we get a pass on some of the commands of the Bible when it concerns our family because they're our family and they got a higher place of authority. Or authority is maybe the wrong word, but they got a higher priority than obeying some of these commands. We ran into that idea a number of years ago when for Amy and I, someone in our extended family uh, came out publicly embracing an openly sinful identity and lifestyle. 
And at the same time, and here's, here's what made this important, just as publicly maintained that they were a Christian who knew Christ. And if, if they hadn't done that second part, it would have been a different story. But we had coffee and several times talking it through, and they told me, I know what I'm doing is wrong, and I'm doing it anyways, and I know Christ, and Jesus is okay with this. God's word is crystal clear on how we are to treat people who take those kinds of stands. 1 Corinthians 5.11, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. So someone who's a public Christian. If he's guilty, so publicly guilty, of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So whether we like it or not, that's, that's what God's word says. And disciples of Jesus follow God's word. And so as our first big family celebration approached, I think it might have even been Thanksgiving, knowing that this person was invited, several of us informed the rest of the group that we weren't going to be there and informed them as, as clearly as we could Why? because that's what God's word says. And you can imagine the kind of responses we got. I mean, obviously 1 Corinthians 5, that's not talking about Thanksgiving dinner. Or those passages are for other people in the church, but not our family. In other words, most of the people that were in our immediate circle were thinking like the first century Jews in Jesus' day. Yeah, I know that's what the Bible says, but this is family. Is that how Jesus thinks? Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Jesus gets first place. There is no higher allegiance than Jesus. Everything else, including family loyalty, comes after Jesus. Following Christ and doing what he said trumps even the most sacred family obligation. Now we know that we don't always have to choose between Jesus and our families. We don't always have to choose between following Jesus and having a home. Most of us have a place to lay our heads and we don't have to necessarily feel guilty about that. And in fact, when it comes to our families, following Jesus often means taking care of our families, especially if you've got kids or if you're a husband and have a a wife to care for. And, And even Jesus on the cross takes care of his mother Mary. But even when that's the case, even when following Jesus means that we've got a home to call our own or when following Jesus means that we take care of our family, we need to keep it so straight. Please hear this. We take care of our family. We take care of our home. Not because that's a competing priority, but because that's what Jesus wants us to do. And his word has told that to us. And if and when our loyalty to Jesus collides with our money, our possessions, or even the expectations of our family, Jesus wins every time. Jesus wins every time because he holds the highest place in our hearts. He holds the highest allegiance. Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. 
Now let's let's end on an important note here. In my my uh, class that I took on Matthew back in the spring, we were studying. It might have even been this passage with the guy next to me, and he said, "You know, this doesn't sound very loving, does it?" I thought Jesus was supposed to be loving. I thought God is love, and Jesus reveals the Father. This this sounds cruel. Is, is Jesus a monster for making these kinds of demands on his followers? <laughs> Follow me, even though you might end up homeless and alienated from your family. Who says that kind of thing? Is this a cruel, unusual, heartless command? It would be if Jesus were an ordinary man. It would be if Jesus were just a person. But Jesus is not just an ordinary man. He is the Son of God. And following him is the path to joy that nothing on this world can hold a candle to. That's why the Apostle Paul could say, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss because of the, sorry, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Is how that opened up. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Philippians 3, 7 and 9. See, Paul had understood what Jesus is going to go on to explain in, in chapter 13 of Matthew. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Jesus is a treasure so valuable that when we discover him, we say, I'd give up everything for this treasure because that's how important, that's how valuable he is. He's the pearl of great price that we would sell everything to obtain. Centuries before, David celebrated these truths. Psalm 16, when he said, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. I just love that phrase because people in those days were really concerned with their portion, what part of the land they got as their inheritance. And you wanted a good portion that you could pass on to your kids. And David says, you know what my portion is? It's the Lord himself. I don't need a chunk of land. I just want Yahweh. I want God. And then how he concluded that psalm with the words that we opened up our service with this morning. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. Okay, what is the path of life? It's, it's, it's knowing him. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the path of joy that's open to us in following Jesus. Through, through knowing him, we find the fullness of joy and the endless pleasures that our hearts are hungry for. Isn't this an important truth for us to consider on Thanksgiving Sunday? On this day when we thank God for all the different gifts that he's given us, would you gladly give up every lesser gift Because Jesus is so valuable to you that knowing Jesus and the prospect of being raised and getting to enjoy him forever in a new creation, that's that's a sweeter taste to you than any lesser thing. And so do you see here that this, this hard call of discipleship, this hard cost of discipleship is love? It is mercy Because as Jesus tells us to leave everything behind for him, he's breaking us free from the lesser things that so often compete in our hearts for the greatest treasure. Remember how C.S. Lewis said that we're like little kids playing around with mud pies 
when a vacation at the sea has been offered to us? In today's passage, Jesus knocks some mud pies out of our hand. He says, stop. Come with me. Joy is found this way. And that's why we're going to end this morning with a couple of songs. We're going to sing a song for you, a song that celebrates the treasure that Jesus is. And then we're going to sing a song together. We're going to sing together that we'd rather have Jesus than anything that this world offers to us. Now, maybe, maybe this isn't true for you this morning. Maybe in your heart you're realizing... I'm not sure that I do value Jesus quite this way. I'm I'm not sure that Jesus does have the highest place in my heart that he should. And and if if that's true, I just want to encourage you that it's good to be honest. Remember, Jesus doesn't want half-hearted disciples. He doesn't want fakers. He doesn't want people saying, oh yeah, I'd rather have Jesus when really they're thinking, I'd actually really rather have a lot of things first. He's not interested in that. Be honest with him. But would, would you take these songs and make them a prayer? Would you say, Lord, I, I believe what you've said, that Jesus is supremely valuable, that knowing him for eternity is a treasure that makes everything else look small and dim. Would you help me, God, to value Jesus such that I would gladly hop in the boat with him? And whatever that means in my life, Jesus gets first place. Let's pray that now together. Oh Lord, as we survey the cost of discipleship and the call to leave all and to follow you, would you help us, Lord Jesus, to see and hear a reflection of of your value and your worth, that you would help us to see, Jesus, just just how important you are just how much of a treasure you are, just how precious you are. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us as we taste the treasure that you are, that we would gladly set down anything else, even though it might feel more precious to us, that we would count all things as loss for the sake of gaining you, Lord Jesus. Would you help us with this, O Lord? And I pray this in your name.